As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Reckless driving deaths keep piling up in Milwaukee. I'm really like six and three on my high speeds. I got away six times, I got caught three. There's a game to that? I really wasn't worrying about nobody else's life. I was just worrying about me and my brother's life just to get out that jam. It's killing people. It's killing people. This teenager's dying left and right. That is something, a pain, that I'm gonna have to live with for the rest of my life. Stolen cars, high-speed chases, and aggressive behavior behind the wheel. Reckless driving is nothing new in Milwaukee, but for all of the meetings and task force recommendations, there's been little effort to talk to the young people who are actually engaging in this deadly behavior until now. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with Amanda St. Hilaire. Good morning, Amanda. Hi, Brian. Today is Thursday, November 19th. Once again, we're talking about a problem that has plagued the city of Milwaukee in recent years, and it only seems to be getting worse. That, of course, is reckless driving. We've talked about this issue on this podcast before, but Brian, your story this week took a different approach. You actually talked to a young man who admits he has been driving recklessly for years. So big question, how did you get that interview? Yeah, typically you're not going to find someone who has been stealing cars for five years and uh, leading police on high-speed chases who's real eager to uh, talk on the television news all about his behavior. But in this case, it's a young man who's been working with a local youth mentor with a program called Safe and Sound. And uh, we've spoken in the past in some of our uh, reporting to to this man, Damian Smith. And Damian works with a lot of these troubled youth, and he's really trying to get them sort of back on track, get their lives in, in a positive direction. And this is one young man, he said he's essentially been there for him in, in crisis situations. This is someone who's been through an awful lot. And it was very interesting interesting in the interview. Um, we set this up. We, we actually met in the parking lot of the Mitchell Park Domes, in part because there's a parking lot right there where he and his, he calls them his brothers. I don't think he means his actual relations, but he considers this group of friends and support his brothers. It's where they used to steal cars and do donuts and all sorts of things. And so this was a place that he had a connection to in terms of this behavior. So we, we were in the parking lot of the Mitchell Park Domes. He did not want us to put his face on television, so we ended up shooting the interview from behind his head, and you can see me in the image. And I told him, I said, if we aren't going to see who you are and the people at home aren't going to know your name, I really want you to be candid. And I, I've done that before with people who are opening up about things that are personally embarrassing or maybe even somewhat shameful, and they really hold back because even when you're not going to be identified, you just don't want to admit the things you've done. That was not the case with this young man. He was 100% all in with uh, candid uh, talk 
and transparency about his behavior, at least uh, transparency in terms of how willing he was to talk about his own reckless behavior. He's 17 now. He told me that he first started driving cars the same time he started stealing them at the age of 12. 12. I mean, you think about it. I have a 13-year-old son. I can't even imagine putting him in the driver's seat, much less having him steal people's cars and drive right. uh, at high speeds in them. Uh, but what was interesting about this was, and this doesn't make it into the story. You know, we put something. That's why I love this podcast. We put something on TV. I've got three minutes maybe to tell you the story, but some of the backstory doesn't get there. This was a young man who said that at that age of 12, he'd lost, he, he didn't have a father who was around. His father might've been in prison, might've just not been in the picture. He'd lost his mother who passed away. Um, he had no parents, but he had a group of people who were there for him. They let him sleep on their couches. They let it, they gave him a place to be. They gave him a group that made him feel like family. And so those were people who were there to support him. They happened to also be people who were engaging in a pretty dangerous and risky lifestyle. And he joined that lifestyle. He didn't want to stay home. He said, I wanted to go out. What are you guys doing? Well, they were going out to steal cars. So what did he do? He went along. He learned the behavior. It became part of his lifestyle. And for the past five years, he talks about stealing cars, leading police on chases. Um, and, uh, you know, he would steal them at times, resell the cars. Sometimes he would joyride and dump them. Uh, but he talked. What really stood out in this interview is when he and you see it in the story when he says, I, I'm six and three on my high speeds, and, and I'm a sports fan. Um, the only time I hear people really quote those kind of stats is when they're talking about like a pitcher's win-loss record, or maybe a goalie in hockey. You know, his wins and losses, whatever it might be. Six and three, it sounds like sport. And, you know, he, I got away six times. I got caught three. Now, was he telling the truth? Did Has he really gotten away from the cops six times? I don't know. That could be braggish behavior. That could be something he's looking for, some sort of cred with the people he hangs out with. It could be true. But either way, he found value in keeping track of the results of his high-speed chases. And the one in particular that he describes in the story is one that reached speeds of up to 127 miles per hour. That's outrageously dangerous, but he talks about it uh, with almost a fondness for the memory. What strikes me, Brian, is on one hand, it's important to talk, as we alluded to at the beginning of this episode, it's important to talk to people who engage in this behavior because, the, as you and I discuss frequently, the Reckless Driving Task Force in Milwaukee issued one of their recommendations was find the root problem of reckless driving. I don't know how you do that without talking to people who've engaged in the behavior. On the other hand, when you're telling the story, you don't want to glorify the behavior. So how did you approach that? Because that's a that's a tough line to walk. Well, and I wanted him to be candid. Um, I, I, here's the thing. I don't think there's much we can do on television that will glorify this any more than some of the cultural things that many of these young people are already experiencing. And, and, and we didn't talk about it in this story, but Damien Smith, the youth mentor who put me in touch with this young man, said there are local artists, music artists, who are glorifying this kind of behavior. We talked in our last story about baselining, a term which describes very reckless driving behavior, passing people on the right, passing at intersections, um, at, you know, blowing through red lights, things like that. It's things that are already being glorified in some of the kinds of local, uh, you know, content that young people are consuming. In our story, I wanted people to hear the raw truth of what someone like this has said and how cavalierly he describes it. 
but it needed to be offset by the consequences. And I think that's the important part that so many people have talked about is the young people engaging this they are young and we all know when we were younger maybe we had less fear about the potential consequences of our actions jail doesn't seem to be the thing that's scaring many of them and especially if it's a juvenile detention it doesn't seem to be scaring some of the most reckless drivers uh but death perhaps might the fear of death when you're young maybe seems too far off uh but we're seeing it again and again and again in milwaukee this year alone 73 people died in the first 10 months of the year and that number has already gone up as we've added cases in november but i the data i looked at went through the end of october the first 10 months of 2020 73 people have died in traffic accidents in milwaukee and if you want to put that in context is 73 a lot i don't know statewide the numbers have been going down for years it used to be that we would have four or five hundred fatalities statewide every year it's been dropping down into the you know, two or 300 range at times, but the city of Milwaukee, those numbers keep going up. It used to be that maybe having 20 or 30 fatalities in the city of Milwaukee was a lot, then it was up to 40 or 50. Now we're in the 70s, potentially in the 80s or 90s by the end of this year. So while all of these other traffic incidents around the state, we're seeing fewer fatalities, efforts to curb drunk driving, things like that have been working in the city of Milwaukee, the deaths are going up and that's having a disproportionate effect on people of color who live in the city of Milwaukee. And that's something that studies have borne out. So we're seeing the trend go the wrong direction in the city of Milwaukee. Uh, so, so while this young man describes sort of cavalierly and almost proudly the, the behavior he engaged in, the result is that kind of action is leading to real consequences, people who are losing loved ones in the city of Milwaukee through no fault of their own. And you spoke to someone who lost a loved one. Yeah, Carolyn Hall uh, is someone who... It's interesting, um, the psychology of uh, how anger and, and grief can be intertwined, because Carolyn is very angry. There's no question about it. You speak to her, she is emphatic in her words. She is not maybe the typical person who's lost a loved one who will speak uh, sort of softly, quietly, who will tear up and get very emotional. She did at times, but she, more than anything, speaks very quickly, aggressively, angrily. She's angry. She's lost her daughter. 24-year-old Rhody Molina, her daughter, was a passenger in a vehicle that was going northbound on I-43. She was on her way home from her job at, I believe it was a community-based uh, residential facility. She was working as a nurse aide of some type. And she was on the way home at whatever time in the morning it was. After a long shift, presumably, she's tired. She just wants to get home. The driver of the car going northbound on I-43 apparently never even sees the car coming the other way, the wrong way. That person going the wrong way later told police he was trying to get away from someone who was following him. He intentionally went the wrong way on the freeway. Now, it may be true that someone was following him. It may be true that he feared for his own safety. But before getting on the freeway, he passed right by a police district. He could have pulled into the police station. He could have reported this. Uh, he, he could have called 911. He didn't. He got the wrong way on the freeway and engaged in a chase the wrong way down I-43. And two people died. Rody Molina happened to be one of them. And and for Carolyn Hall, she wants to see something happen. And and it, that's the key to all of this. It's the, the question is what? Everyone wants something to happen. The question is what? That's what the task force was about. That's what all of these recommendations are about. And the interesting thing between this reckless driver, the young man we identified as David, and Carolyn, who's lost a daughter, 
is they both pointed to something that it seems to me many people want to avoid talking about, and that is how strict the punishment is for some of these behaviors, especially for juveniles. Um, David pointed out that if you want some of these young kids who think this is just a lot of fun to get the message, they need to spend some time in jail. They need to spend some time with consequences because to him, that's the thing that will, will, will wake someone up. He's now waking up to it because he's 17 and will be treated as an adult. And he realizes the next time he gets caught, it's not going to be a catch and release. It's not going to be a few days in juvenile. He said, the next time I get knocked, I'm going to the county. He means the county jail, adult jail, things are different. Um, so th that idea of consequence is certainly something that some people say there, there has to be more of. Is that the only thing? Uh, clearly not. There's been a lot of discussion of the, the, the concern that if all you do is bring down the hammer, that uh, you, you, you may do very little to uh, deal with the root cause, which is what we talked about in the beginning. Why are people driving this way in the first place? And, and fear of jail time may not be enough to change that behavior. So it, it's, a, it's a challenging issue, but both Carolyn and David pointed to the issue of needing to be tougher on people who engage in this behavior. Well, and Brian, you made it a point to engage with someone who admits that he's been part of the problem. That's not really something we saw from city leaders as they were in the process of doing their task force. Do you know if they even tried and were unsuccessful? Why didn't they do essentially the same thing you did, but off camera? I think what happens with something like a, a, a task force like the one that was uh, convened for um, for carjacking and reckless driving is it, with people who mean very well, who want to get to the root of a problem, they convene community leaders and stakeholders who um, oftentimes end up being the, the sort of typical ones. You have police at the table, you have excuse me, the DA's office at the table, you have, uh, you know, various people from social service agencies and things that might be at the table. But was everyone represented? There are some people who've been critical of that. We've interviewed and spoken before to um, Celia Jackson, who started a, an organization called Coalition for Safe Driving, MKE. And she says she thinks there were a lot of people who were missing at the table. And one group among them was young people who were engaging in this behavior. They weren't they didn't convene a panel of them. They didn't reach out to talk to them to try to get to that question of root cause. And by not at least reaching out, not asking the questions, they don't hear stories like those from David where you can look for, okay, well, what might have prevented him from spending five years on the road in stolen cars at 100 plus miles an hour running from the cops? Um, would, you know, curb bump outs have stopped that behavior? I, I don't know. I, 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 it doesn't seem that that alone would be the issue. I mean, we know one of the things the task force is really focused on is engineering solutions. And there may well be some benefit to re-engineering our roads in a way where it's harder to pass at intersections, where it's it's harder to have the sort of width of the road to weave in and out. But would that have deterred someone like David from leading police on, on high-speed chases and stolen cars? And David's not his real name. It's just the name you're using yes. for this purpose. Yeah, he didn't he didn't want us to use his name. I'm aware of his real name. And and I will I want to point something out about that too because I think this says something about that question of glorification. David's not his real name. I do know his real name. And the incident he described was one that occurred last year in uh, started in the city of Franklin, ended up in Greenfield, and it ended up with a pit maneuver by Greenfield police. We've reported on the use of pit maneuvers by Greenfield police. They've been very aggressive in trying to stop 
uh, young people in stolen cars during high-speed chases. He described it in such detail, it seems clear he was either in that vehicle as he claims, or he has watched the video so many times and studied it that he knows every, every bit of it, um, which seems a little less likely. But interestingly enough, knowing his name, I looked through 40-something pages of police reports from Greenfield Police. His name is nowhere in there. Now, his description of that event is that after the pit maneuver, he jumped out of the car, ran, and, and ducked in an alley and hid, and another friend in the car jumped in the driver's seat and took off. And from the dash cam video, there's a break between the pit maneuver and when the car takes off again where you can't exactly see what happens. Um, Greenfield police have arrested someone, and the DA has charged someone who they believe was behind the wheel the whole time. And it's not David. It's someone else. So is he claiming to have engaged in a chase that he wasn't even the driver of? Or did police not get one of the people involved? We don't know the answer to that. And I, that's not something I was able to set, settle by the time this story aired. But one way or the other, he clearly was very well versed in how these things go. He described where he stole the car with specificity. Um, he knew the, the make and model of the vehicle. He described exactly what happened as you see it in the video. So it seems credible that he was the one behind the wheel. But it really struck me that what if he wasn't? Why would someone claim to have been the person behind the wheel of something like that? And what does that say about someone in his position where he is in the community that he would want to claim responsibility for something like that? It, it seems like the kind of thing you would want to deny being a part of rather than saying, yeah, that was me behind the wheel. So, you know, it, it's either him who engaged in that chase or someone who thinks it's a really great thing to claim you were involved in that kind of behavior, which I think maybe speaks volumes about how these sorts of chases and and how this sort of behavior is viewed among some young people in, in Milwaukee. Well, and it sounds like really what started this whole thing is is the bigger issue of poverty right because then that's what launched him into this group of people who ended up not being such a great influence and saying hey milwaukee solve solve reckless driving is already a, a tall order but hey solve poverty that's not something that happens with the task force Absolutely not. And I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so challenging about an issue like this. So many of the issues we deal with in, in the city of Milwaukee right now, we have an increase in homicides that everyone can see is is tied largely to the, the pandemic and loss of jobs and, and poverty. And, and so there are social issues that play into all of these things. And if you say we're going to solve this with, you know, curb bump outs or a, an awareness campaign uh, or we're going to solve it with stricter enforcement and more tickets being written. None of those things in and of themselves seem like a you know the, the silver bullet to solve this. Uh, there are certainly social things at, at the core of all of this, but at the very least, in hearing from someone like David, you get the idea of his view of this kind of behavior. Now, he said things in the interview that sound like he's going down the right path, right? He says, I'm not into that anymore. I want to get a job. Um, you know, I don't want to die this way, and I want kids who look up to people like me to know you know, you're going to die doing this. Um, this isn't the way to behave. But yet there he is speaking in almost glowing terms about the way he behaved, almost like it's it is a badge of, of honor, but, you know, keeping track of his his stats. Um, so was he saying that because he's 
engaged with a, you know, a, a local community mentor and he's trying to get a, a break on his probation. I don't know. Could be. Um, but certainly the candid nature of what he said speaks volumes about the way it's viewed. And, you know, I'm not the person who can the expert who can say, here's how you get to the core of uh, of that sort of juvenile behavior and, and solve it. But at least knowing what's being said and, and, and what is in the minds of some of the people engaging this is a starting point. Well, and that's the point of you doing all these stories about reckless driving, right? It's to engage with people who maybe we haven't heard from and get to the root of some of these issues that tend to get glossed over. You know, Carolyn Hall in this story um, obviously lost a daughter and there was something we didn't talk about on the air, but she told me right after the interview was over um, that really you know can complicate things. She has been outspoken about the need for reckless driving to be something that the city cracks down on, that police get tougher on. Uh, yet, she said there is someone in her own family, and I believe it's extended family, but she has a relative who is someone who was actually involved in a serious or possibly fatal reckless driving crash where this relative was the person who engaged in the reckless behavior. So she has family members saying, hey, you, you got to stop speaking out about this and you got to watch what you're saying. I mean, this is family. That's how difficult of a situation it is. She's lost a daughter to a reckless driver, but has some other extended family member who has engaged in this behavior. And, you know, there's a lot of people that this touches. How do you navigate that? I think it, it, it's tricky for uh, anyone looking into this, but imagine being Carolyn Hall, who's uh, got the impact really from both sides. Is there anything else that struck you about this that didn't make it into your honor story? Because I know if you included everything, we'd have a bunch of 30-minute documentaries. And in television news, that's just not always possible. Well, not just about this, but I think this is one of those issues that, um, you know, the term, I, I almost fear that the term reckless driving, people go, yeah, we've heard about it. We know it's a problem and they might tune out. But I think there are so many aspects of the aggressive driving behavior in Milwaukee and that problem that, that are left to be determined. And one of them, and it's one of them we are still investigating, is what is the city's plan going forward? For one thing, we know the police department said a couple of months ago to us back in September that they were going to step up patrols. Have they? Uh, we don't know. We haven't seen the data. That's something we need to find out. Have they? I haven't seen a whole lot of visual evidence that it looks like there's been a whole lot of stepped up patrols, but perhaps they have in, in targeted areas. That's something we need to find out. But more importantly than that, what is the city's plan as a whole for tackling this? Do they have a plan? Um, one of the recommendations that came down from the task force was to participate in a program called Vision Zero, which is something that is uh, uh, sort of more of an ideal, uh, but it is a, a, a loosely organized program around the country. I believe it actually started in Sweden, but it, there are a number of cities across the, the country that have signed on to this Vision Zero concept, which essentially takes into account all the things that the task force was looking at, engineering of streets and and uh, you know incorporating that with public awareness campaigns and, and behavior and so on. But the idea behind it is to have some sort of a comprehensive plan. 
Does the mayor's office have a plan? The mayor is currently the one responsible for implementing all of these recommendations. Do they have a plan? We don't know. Is Vision Zero the right plan? That's a good question too because it involves hiring a consultant. And you know, how much money do you spend on consultants? You know, what's what's really the the metric to say this is or isn't working? There are some who uh, very much want to see the city sign onto a plan like that. Uh, there are some who think there's a, a better direction. But the question really I think that we have going forward is what is the direction? Does the city have a plan and, and how do you measure if it's successful? Um, at the moment, if the metric is fatalities, we seem to still be going in the wrong direction. Well, we know that's an issue that you're going to keep covering, Brian, and that's exactly why we're going to keep bringing you these episodes of Open Record. We're going to be covering reckless driving, the pandemic, the fallout from the presidential election, police community relations, and a whole lot more. So if there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email, and you can send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. That's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. And as always, thank you to the people who helped make this podcast possible, from producer Pete to Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Polson, and for Amanda St. Hilaire, we'll be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Tuesday. Tuesday.